Thank you very much, Eric, for leading us in prayer. Thank you, Frank, for reading the scripture passage. We're, we're back in Psalm 32 again, uh, just like we were last week. And we're diving back into this series that we are currently uh, working on, on confession and forgiveness. Last week, uh, what we discovered is, is that the Bible teaches something very interesting. It teaches that the happiest and most loving people, people in the world are also the most deeply forgiven people in the world, forgiven by God. Now what that means, then, is that the path to deep joy, which every human being on this earth is looking for, that the path to, to well-being and fulfillment that everybody on this earth is looking for, that the path to blessing leads directly through true, genuine, authentic confession of sin before God. Now, that's not actually that unique. If it sounds unique to you, uh, trust me, it's not. This is something that every branch of Christianity, every flavor of the Christian faith, every denomination or tradition uh, has agreed upon, that it is absolutely essential that we confess our sin before God if we're to experience real joy and freedom in our lives. Now, last week what I tried to do was just to show why that is um, from the Bible. And uh, if you want to hear that again, obviously you've got to go back and listen to that because we're not going to go over that again. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to learn from this passage, once again, how to distinguish between true and false confession. What does biblical repentance look like? What does true confession look like? How do you know you're actually doing it? And you might think, well, duh. Of course I know when I'm actually doing it, because I know it when I mean it. Oh, guys, listen. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says uh, that the heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. Who can understand it? So often, we actually can fool ourselves into thinking that we're truly confessing our sin when we actually aren't. In fact, you know, the current situation that we find the world in, not COVID, but Black Lives Matter. Uh, the issue of systemic racism, racism is a perfect example of that because what uh, African Americans and other minority groups are saying is, look, we've spent hundreds of years, maybe not that long everywhere, but certainly decades, at least in the United States and in Canada, hearing apology after apology after apology. Uh, about the systemic racism that has happened in our society, but it's not real. It's not true. It's not authentic. It's not genuine, and we're tired of it. Now, the stakes on this issue are very, very high. You know, there's a place in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Doesn't that sound beautiful? But then he says, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now what he means by that is, is that there's a, there's a kind of confession that is not life-giving, that is life-draining. It leads to death. It, it leads to a loss of confidence, a loss of power, a loss of joy. The other kind, godly sorrow, is life-giving. It is life-sustaining. It doesn't 
It doesn't traumatize you. It doesn't leave you feeling shameful. It's not disempowering. We need to know the difference. So today we're going to look at four things together. I'll unpack what each of those things is as we go along. And the first thing is this. True confession knows that all sin is against God first. Now Psalm 32, as we said last week, is a reflection on David's sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery uh, by sleeping with Bathsheba, and then he tried to cover it up. And then, uh, when he couldn't cover it up, he actually had her husband, Uriah, murdered in order that he could take Bathsheba as his own wife. Now, this means that David sinned against all kinds of people. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He, he sinned against his own family. He sinned against a lot of people, and, and he sinned against God, too. But what's interesting is that Psalm 32 says nothing about his sin against those other people. It's all about his sin against God. In verse 5, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Now, you might think, well, you're making a little much of this, Paul. But Psalm 51 is another psalm of David, and it is also a psalm in response to his uh, sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. Uh, scholars think that Psalm 32 is like a reflection a long time after the fact, and that Psalm 51 was written quite uh, quite soon after the fact, and, it, and it's more of a visceral kind of uh, psalm uh, because it's so close to the actual events. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, David says this. He says to God, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's saying that all sin, whatever, it's, whatever it is, and, and against whomever it's committed, is primarily a sin against the goodness and grace of God. He's not saying that he didn't sin against anybody else. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, is that all sin is first and foremost against God. And Jesus says something similar, actually. In Luke 15, in the story of the prodigal son, you'll remember the younger son, he wanted his inheritance, he demanded it, and, his father gave it to him, and so he takes off and he squanders his inheritance. And when he comes to his senses and he decides to go back to his father's house, to ask to be a servant in his house, when his father meets him, he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. There's an order to his confession, and it's the right order. Now, why is that the case? Why is it that all sin is against him? If I... Mark was in here, and I, you know, clocked him one across the face. First of all, that'd be really stupid, because he would totally destroy me in no time flat. But, if I did that, I've committed a sin against him. Why do I have to say to God, I've committed a sin against you? Well, it's because this. Every violation of the law, of the moral law, is a violation against God, because he is the moral law giver. Let me give you a, a quick illustration. If I steal John's car, I didn't steal Sam's car, and therefore if I get caught and I get charged, I'm not charged for a sin against John, I'm charged for a sin against Sam. 
but I'm not only charged for a sin against Sam, I'm actually charged for a sin against the state, or I'm charged for breaking a law of the state. That's why if I go to court, it doesn't say John versus Paul, it says the province of Ontario versus Paul Vandenberg. Because any violation of the law done against an individual in our state is also a violation against the state, you see? And so the same is true in our relationship with God, because he is the lawgiver. Any violation against one of his creation in his world is a violation against him. But it's not just that you're violating his abstract law. No, 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 no. It's, there's more to it than that. It's a violation against the person of God. You see, the law of God is meant to express his character and his desire, his heart. The Ten Commandments, when you read them, you might think to them, well, yeah, they're obvious and we shouldn't do those things. But the reason they're obvious, the reason you shouldn't do those things is because they're a revelation of the nature and character and desires and passions of God himself. They reflect who he is. He is truthful, so you do not lie. He is life-giving, so you do not murder. He is pure, so you do not defile yourself, etc. When we break the law, when we sin against someone, we're, we're not just breaking some abstract thing. We're breaking, in a sense, God's heart. We're hurting him. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we actually grieve the Holy Spirit. We offend a person. He's not just an energy. He's personal. He has personality. He has feelings, if I can put it that way. That's the first point. And we've got to remember, it's very important because of the second point. Let's move on to the second point. So the first point is true confession knows that all sin is against God first. True confession, secondly, avoids self-pity and self-loathing. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Now, obviously, this is God speaking to us, right? And God uses this beautiful illustration of worldly sorrow for us. This is what worldly sorrow is like. He, he likens it to being a horse or a mule. On a path. So, so here's the picture. You're riding, you're riding your horse on a path. And at some point, the horse sees something off the path that it kind of likes. And so it sort of scoots over there and it's, you know, some green grass or something, and it's hungry. And, and so what do you do? You give it a little yank. And the little yank on the bridle, it, it pulls up the bit that's in the horse's mouth, and that kind of hurts, right? So then the, you know, the horse goes back into the middle and you're trotting along and then it sees something else and you give it another little yank and it comes back to the center and then, and then you're trotting along a little young, longer and it, it starts to go off again. And this time maybe you give it quite a, a, a strong tug and a hard yank. And the mule comes back and it stands in the center or it stays in the center of the path. Why? It's, it's modified its behavior, right? But why has it modified its behavior? It's, it's simply for the sake of self-preservation. It hurts to have a bit come up in your mouth like that. And so it's obeying you simply to avoid pain. It's not sorry for its sin. It's just sorry for the consequences. It, it's not coming back because it loves you. 
It's coming back because it loves itself, you see. There's no actual heart change. It needs the bit and the bridle to affect it. Now, this is uber-duber common, you know. Um, think about your own life. When, when do you admit sin? Remember, the heart's deceitful, right? The heart's deceitful. When do you finally admit it? When do you finally see it? Well, oftentimes, most often, it's when you experience pain, when you get caught, and trouble's coming as a result. Now, here's the thing. The danger in that moment is to simply want to relieve the pain as quickly as possible. Just get rid of it, like the mule wants to get rid of it. You don't like the consequences. So you feel bad. But you see, you're feeling bad for you, and that's really self-pity. Let me give you a common, an all-too-common example of this. Here's a husband who's a workaholic. He has lost himself in his work. He's finding his identity in his work, his worth in his work, and so he is consumed by his work. And it's not a seasonal thing. This is an ongoing thing. And his wife says, look, your dedication to your work, is, it's becoming a problem. Um, you're not home enough. Uh, you're not around for the kids enough. When you are here, you're distracted. And you're distant. And, and you don't pay attention to us. And he doesn't listen. Until finally his wife says, look, I can't go on like this. I'm leaving. Now all of a sudden he freaks out. And he pleads with her. And he cries and he promises to go to counseling, and he promises that he will change, and he, he begins to beat himself up for it, and he feels absolutely terrible for what he's done to his family. And, and it's true feelings. It's not inauthentic. It's not fake. He th or he thinks it's true feelings, at least. He thinks he really feels terrible for it. And he begins to, to beat himself up like crazy, and he says, I'm a miserable mess, and I suck, and I'm a worm, and I don't deserve you, but I promise to change. So he he falls into not only self-pity, but he falls into self-loathing. And it's not a put-on. He's not being purposely deceitful. He's very emotional about it. But, you see, he's not actually repenting. He's not looking to God for forgiveness. It's worldly sorrow, you see, and it leads to death. Because what he's really just trying to do is he's trying to pay the debt somehow. He's, he's, he's turning his confession almost into a work. You know, it's, it's, it's like he's thinking to himself, if I feel bad enough, then eventually I'll, I'll be able to stop feeling so bad. Because I'll have paid my dues. I'll have paid it back. If I feel bad enough, I can, I can get rid of my guilt. And then he begins to work on it. He begins to, to try. And he... he, he, he he comes home at a reasonable time, and he interacts with the family at the, at the dinner table, and he uh, helps kids with homework and all this kind of stuff. And his wife, she begins to see that he's more attentive, and she's improving, he's improving, and that she's working on it, he's working on it. But over time, he begins to realize, you know, she's not going to leave. And he begins to slip back into the same old being. He's not doing it consciously. It's not like he, he, uh, he was scheming all this time. Oh, I just got to straighten up and fly right for a little while until this blows over, and then I can go back to what I really want to do. No. It's subconscious, but it's not authentic. What's going on is that 
He's not sorry about what he's done to her. He's not sorry about what he's done to the kids. He's not sorry about what he's done to God. No, he's sorry about what he's done to himself. Another way of putting it is to say he's not upset at the sinfulness of the sin, but he's upset at the consequences of the sin. But he's just worried about him. Now contrast this with David. You know, you don't get the whole story, obviously, in Psalm 32, but you do in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan, he comes to see David and he confronts David about his sin because David was covering it up and wasn't getting caught, and so he wasn't confessing. But Nathan confronts him and shows him his sin. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord and done what is evil in his sight. And he repents. And Nathan tells him, you are forgiven, but do understand that this child is going to die because Bathsheba was pregnant. Now, during the pregnancy, we read that David pleads with God. He prays for this child. He, he spends whole nights on the dirt just weeping and wailing and praying and begging God to spare this child's life. But the child is born and the child does die. And we read then that David gets up and he washes his face and he goes into the temple to worship. To worship. Now why? Is that his response? True confession doesn't rant and rave over the consequences. You see, it accepts the consequences because that's not what the confession was about in the first place. It wasn't about avoiding the consequences. Well, you ask, what's it about? If it's not about avoiding the consequences, what in the world is it about? I'm so glad you asked. Point number three, true confession. True confession has a gospel motivation. Verse eight says, I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. And verse 10 says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. See, true confession sees sin not as a violation of God's law, but as a violation of God's love. Verse 8, like we said before, it's God talking, and he says, I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. If you're attentive, you, you, you think, oh, that's, that's curious, that's strange. I mean, Habakkuk 1, verse 13, and we looked at Habakkuk a number of weeks ago, says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. But I'm a sinner, and I'm evil. And yet, God is saying here that he wants to relate to David. He wants to have a relationship with David. He wants to, to, to see David eye to eye, pouring out his unfailing love on him, verse 10 says. See, David understood that he had not just broken God's law, but in a sense, he had broken God's heart. And that's what you're most concerned with in true confession. That you've broken relationship. Not that you've violated stipulations. And confession seeks that kind of restoration. Uh, Stephen Charnock, he's a Puritan writer from many, many centuries ago. Listen to what he says. He says, a legalistic conviction of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice, chiefly, but a gospel conviction of sin arises from a sense of God's goodness. 
A legalistic repentance cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as a roaring of a lion. I have provoked one that is sovereign Lord of heaven and earth whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. Pretty scary. But a gospel convicted person says, I have incensed the goodness like the dropping of the dew. I have offended a God who has the deportment of a friend. I have incurred the anger of a judge, says the legalist. I have abused the tenderness of a father, says the gospel-convinced person. Now, if that was hard to understand, let me just translate really quickly for you. Legalistic, self-centered, false confession sees God as a judge who's going to get me, so I better be sorry. I'm scared, so I repent. But a gospel-driven confession says, I've offended my father. I've hurt my father. I have spurned his love, which is sweet and tender and has fallen on me like a gentle summer rain on a parched land. In other words, true confession is motivated by God's mercy, not by his judgment. Well, how do we get to that place where we're not seeing God as this judge and we're just trying to avoid getting in trouble with him so we say sorry for self-preservation's sake, but we see God as a, a loving father who del delights in us and cares for us and is, is saddened, is grieved by our sin so that we are motivated because he's so merciful and patient with us to, to truly own it and give it over to him. Last point, true confession comes from God's unfailing love. This is verse 10. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Why are we so afraid to be honest? It's funny, we're, we're really afraid to be honest with people. But I've discovered that Strangely enough, people who can't see God, who may even know that God knows everything about them, they struggle to be honest with God too. Why? Why? Why do we resist vulnerability? Why do we avoid confession? It's fear. It's fear of rejection. People have a picture of going to God in confession as walking to the foot of Mount Sinai. You remember in, in Exodus where God gave the law at Mount Sinai and the, 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 there was like a, like a hurricane and a tornado and you know an earthquake and a firestorm happening all at once on that mountain. And they trembled. The people trembled as they came to hear God's law. People think of confession as, as going to that place and out of fear they have to approach Mount Sinai, but they, they forget that because of Jesus, we don't go to Mount Sinai to confess. We go to Calvary. David says, God's love surrounds those who trust in him. You know, when Jesus Christ went to the cross at Calvary, he took our sin upon his shoulders 
And he bore the penalty for every single one of them. Even the ones that you don't know need confessing, they've been placed on the shoulders of Jesus and they were buried in that grave when he died and was buried. So that 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You hear what it said? It said that he is faithful and just. God, in his justice, forgives us. Must forgive us. His justice demands that he forgive us. Not give us punishment. Not give us judgment. But give us grace. That unfailing love that surrounds anybody who trusts in him. Fill your mind with that. Go to confess and hide yourself in him, not from him. You notice what it says in verse 7? You are my hiding place. Here's how you know you've got it, okay? When confession no longer becomes an isolated, traumatic event for you, and it becomes something that is a part of your rhythm, because it's not terrifying, because it's not isolating, because it's not traumatic. It's not torture. You don't hate it. But you welcome the opportunity to confess your sin and experience God's blessing because you come to him based not on your performance, but on Jesus' performance. Not, not on your promises, but on his promises. Not on your past, because of, but because of his past. And not based on your record, but because of his record. That's where true confession starts. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know so little of what it means to confess truthfully and honestly. Father, break us with your mercy and your grace to see that we are already accepted through the blood of Jesus, that we have nothing to prove to you. And so... We need not be surprised about our failures. We can be honest about them. And we can find them covered by the blood of Jesus. May we not turn confession into a work trying to earn your favor by, by feeling bad enough, by groveling enough. But may we just entrust ourselves to our, our Savior Jesus. Taking every one look at our sin, we take ten looks at our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.